Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio on our special day and time. I'm glad you found your way here today. Here where we speak truth to patriarchal power, to predator capitalism, and I think have the courage to propose a new normal. Yes, yes, a new normal so the 99% of us have a better quality of life. You know, as we say here, there is an alternative to the patriarchal order, though the status quo prefers you not know it. It hasn't always been this way. It doesn't have to continue as it is. We don't need to continue to exploit workers, the environment, humanity, and species on Mother Earth. We can have a world where women are equal and 70% of us don't continue to retire in poverty or continue to be punished for the religious dogma of, of, of some men, like poor Eve's sin. And women have been made to suffer since that propaganda got thrown up against the wall and stuck. The alternative, we say, is um, sacred feminine liberation theology, which we talk about here, namely the sacred feminine as deity, archetype, and ideal, which I've written about in my books, Goddess Calling, described as comfort food to help us find our way during this evolution, Voices of the Sacred Feminine, Conversations to Reshape Our World, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, and Walking an Ancient Path, Rebirthing Goddess on Planet Earth. I hope you might find time to check those out because we talk about the ideals of the Sacred Feminine, equality, justice, caring, sharing, and partnership instead of domination and exploitation. And you know what? Uh, The Pope is in sync with all of this uh, lately. Uh, Dear Pope Francis, uh, surprised that he has been to so many of us. Maybe you heard his uh, talk, I think it was yesterday or the day before, when he was in Bolivia, uh, apologizing for the church's actions during uh, the colonialization of the Americas. And again, he spoke out against corporate greed. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, today our show was going to be about alternative history, a favorite subject of today's guest, Andrew uh, Go. Uh, I'm sorry, Go. Uh, I'm sorry, Andrew. Tell me again how to pronounce it. Sure, it's it's Goff. That's fine. Goff. I'm. I. You know. I. It slipped. I'm sorry. It le- left my mind. Anyway, he has uh, uh, been so generous to call in today from the UK. Uh, Andrew is quite the expert in alternative history, uh, as uh, as many of us are, because uh, you know I think once you discover the sacred feminine that had been swept beneath the sands of time, uh, and you discover uh, maybe the true history of Abrahamic religion. You know uh, that history is written by the conquerors or the people with enough leisure time to write the ancient scripts. It wasn't usually the underdogs or the people toiling in the fields, as Howard Zinn's History of the U.S. testifies. You also discover that mythology shapes our culture. 
And if the only mythology acceptable is that of a male god, then you end up with male leadership and authority. And sorry, but women, goddess, the planet, and all the species on it end up devalued and marginalized. Well, uh, my guest today, Andrew, uh, is not afraid of peering behind the locked doors or digging for clues beneath the sands of time. He's a sleuth, as are we, only too glad to uncover what's been hidden away from us. Because, you know, I think usually if it's been hidden away, there's a reason. There's probably something we really need to know. And today, I think you'll be very glad to hear the direction we're taking with our show topic we're calling The Goddess That Fell to Earth. Ah, yes, you might have guessed it. That's Cabelli herself. And the show might also remind you a bit of Lane Redman's work. I think many of you out there recognize that name because we'll be talking about The Hidden Hive of History, and which is the title of Andrew's next book. We'll be delving into Andrew's research, leading him to believe the mother goddess evolved into the bee goddess, or queen bee, I believe. He'll explain all of that. Uh, We'll be talking about the veneration of the bee in prehistory, as well as Atlantis and the connection between Minoan Crete and Chateau Hayuk. Uh, We'll be talking about Cabelli and our sacred site at Pessinus, I believe, and more on how sacred stones and goddess and bees all are interconnected. This might sound familiar to many of you, but stay tuned in anyway, because Andrew just might have some pieces of the puzzle we've yet to discover ourselves. And considering our conversation today will be so much about bees, don't miss the closing music tonight uh, from Lane Redman as we uh, play a tribute to her, her work, and the sacred bees of Herstory. So let's begin with an uh, introduction of uh, Andrew. Uh, I discovered him, actually, on a Forbidden History episode on television, but uh, I'll tell you more about him. He's been doing a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, He's been a researcher of historical conundrums for years, and he studied with the Spanish uh, Kabbalist who who mentored Jean Cocteau and Salvador Dali. Uh, He's the editor of The Heretic, a digital magazine featuring a leading voices in the genres of alternative history, religion, and science. Uh, He features uh, his research on his popular website that is his name, uh, Andrew Goff, uh, A-N-D-R-E-W-G-O-U-G-H.com. He's the former editor of Mindscape, an ancient and alternative history magazine, former director of the Institute of Interdisciplinary Sciences, uh, ISIS, as those uh, initials spell out, uh, and the former chairman of the long-running esoteric uh, and uh, Rennes-le-Chateau-centric research society, the Wren Group. In 2011, he starred in two psychological movie thrillers, The Stone and Paranormal Haunting, The Curse of the Blue Moon Inn. Uh, he's an experienced presenter of historical documentaries and most recently featured in uh, several new programs, including What on Earth, a six-part series for the Science Channel, Inquisition, a four-part series for the Discovery Channel, Forbidden History, as I mentioned, a six-part series on UK's Yesterday Channel, Myth Hunters, uh, two episodes of Series 5 of the popular U.S. Uh, TV series, Ancient Black Ops, an episode on the Viking, uh, maybe Varangian guards. And uh, he's recently presented, is that right, Varangian? That's Um, right, yeah. 
Okay. And uh, Andrew recently presented a documentary for the Smithsonian Channel in the UK, Channel 5, called The Nazi Temple of Doom, which uh, debuted in 2012 and 2011. And I actually saw here on US TV uh, just recently. Uh, and he presented The Truth Behind King Arthur for the National Geographic Channel, which I'm looking forward to seeing. And um, he presented Nostradamus in 2012 and the yet to be released The Alien Within. His forthcoming projects include Forbidden History Series number three and his own six part special, The Gods of Men. And we know he's working on the book, The Hidden Hive of History. Andrew, how do you? find the time <laughs> yeah, yeah t- time is the holy grail i think that's the holy grail but uh thank you for that very kind introduction it, it's uh, a real treat to be on your show well, you know, you uh, you were talking about the kinds of stuff that uh, really interest us. And, you know, it seems to me alternative histories are really almost becoming a secular religion. Um, do you find that as well? I mean, the, those ideas are becoming so popular? Uh, absolutely. And and I think, you know, slowly but surely we're, we're, we're pulling away the veils of, of the dogma and, and people are – are being presented with, with information that they're assimilating as their own truths. And, and, you know, we don't need to tell them what, what the real truth is. Once you look at the facts and once you look at the evidence uh, in its abundance, I, I think it just becomes really clear. And, and people are excited about that. They're excited to learn um, history the way it, it, it really was and really is. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, we start to realize that, uh, you know, history is written in in, in a certain way to perpetuate a certain idea or a certain group. I mean, it reminds me of here in the United States, um, you know, George Bush has a library in Texas, Um, you know, not the father Bush, but the son, the one who started the Iraq War. And, um, you know, if you go in that library, you hear a whole different version of what happened leading up to the Iraq War than most of us actually lived, you know, and and we see that over and over again, uh, even in Texas, uh, again, Texas, uh, here in the United States, they control a large portion of the history books in the United States, and they, uh, you know, have set about trying to um, leave people out of history that don't um, support a conservative agenda. You know, they don't want to have Thomas Jefferson in the history books because, you know, he didn't believe the country should be a Christian nation. They want to leave, uh, you know, minorities out of the history books if they've accomplished something great. And, um, I, you know, I, I think people resent that, you know, when they uh, when they find that out. And maybe that's all a part of why so many of us distrust authority like never before. Yes, I mean, I mean we, we all are painfully aware that history is written by the victors, but but that's no longer going to be the case. I mean, the, the information age, the Internet, uh, the media, it, it's now possible to rewrite history, not by the victors, but by, you know, the way it actually went down. And, and, and that's exciting. And I, I think, you know, situations like the one you described in, in Texas, uh, you know, we will over, overcome those and, and we'll look back in, in 20 years and, you know, it, it just won't be the case. Uh, only the truth will, will, will prevail. I, I really right. do believe that. 
Well, I think so. I mean, I remember back in 2005 when I wrote my first book, Sacred Places of Goddess, how difficult it was to actually uncover places like that all around the world unless it was a major site you know um and sometimes you you know you had to really dig like for instance to find out the temple mount had a temple to aphrodite on it or to the roman gods you know because the majority of people out there just think of the temple mount in terms of christianity uh in judaism really i think and um uh, you know, or, or well, of course, you know, Islam, the big three, uh, or they don't know if you go to uh, Mecca and, you know, you're circumambulating that Kaaba stone, but that Kaaba stone, a meteorite, just like Cabelli's stone, uh, was Islamic scholars of, uh, of long ago said that that stone was actually uh, worshipped as a goddess stone. And, and you know, in, early on, it still glowed a green. And, you know, it's so fascinating to find out these things that you just don't learn about, you know, in the traditional uh, history books. And uh, it used to be you had to dig really deep to find this stuff out. But, you know, thanks to, you know, as you say, uh, you know, the Internet, these things are at our fingertips. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you do you, and I want to jump into our, our our story, but just to you know kind of uh, get a sense of what it's like for us, you know you know our friends across the pond, um, like the stuff I described here that you know uh, go on in Texas, for instance, you know uh, trying to distort history. Do you find that that also goes on there in in the UK or Europe or do you you know sometimes I think over here it's you know it, it's just because of the religious right and conservatives but you know I think of um, you know I think of Europe as being more secular uh, but do you have that um, you know that that group of people that is you know is is trying to bend history uh, you know in a direction that you know, maybe for their own agenda as opposed to what's really going on? Well, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm from Chicago, so I, I can relate to everything that, that you're saying. I've been living in, in the U.K. and in Turkey for the last uh, 20 years. And, and so I think it's less so here. Um, and although, ironically, the last, you know, major attempt to rewrite uh, history was around the time of the Second World War, that's another topic for another day, but that would be uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, but really, there's not uh, a heavy hand of suppression. Um, and there's a fair, um, refreshingly so voice of, of the goddess. Um, the goddess is, is um, uh, venerated and acknowledged at all the sites that you would expect uh, and hope uh, that she be venerated uh, at. So I would say there's, there's less of a suppression uh, of uh, the, the truth of history and, 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 you know, those free speaking voices and in particular, the sacred feminine is, is I think fairly alive, fairly, because it, it's still sort of suppressed and it's still been rewritten and, and, uh, and, and uh, repositioned over the, over the, uh, over the years, but, but um, less so here, I think, than, than in the U S. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's uh, you know, let's start talking about uh you and your research. Uh when I saw you on the Forbidden History show, uh you had behind you uh your computer screen and I was instantly attracted <laughs> to that title. Um that was very savvy of you. I just love that you did that. Uh and obviously it worked. <laughs> um it, you know, you had had on the screen the goddess who fell to earth and I immediately jumped on the computer thinking, okay, he's got a book out there. And then I, I found that you had an article, which um, I uh, I didn't have a chance to read yet, but I dug a little more and dug a little more and saw that you had been to Pessinus and, you know, you had, uh, 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 and, and, you know, a lot of the work that you've done, you know, is so in sync with, with what I've done and the people that you know, my listeners uh, are interested in. Was there was there anything in particular that drew you down this path? I mean, was it the goddess and pessimists, or uh, I mean, how did the how did the the sleuthing start to you know bring you to pessimists and Cabelli and all of that? You know, it, it was interesting. I, I was chairman of the society that, that studies the Renault Chateau mystery, and, and I got uh, fortunate enough to be invited to to Spain to study with a, a Kabbalist who had mentored Salvador Dali and John Cocteau, and, and you have to be invited to uh, to study with her. And I was, and we were going to study uh, various aspects of the mystery of Renault Chateau, and we were sitting on a balcony and outside of Girona uh, and having breakfast, getting ready to start um, a pretty intense study weekend, just the two of us. You know, she was, she's passed away now, but she was then, oh, 70 something probably. But, but um, a bee flew at, around our table, a huge bee. And, and we got to talking about bees and that's it. We, you know, uh, went off on um, a real in-depth study uh sort of um, course over a couple of years with this amazing Kabbalist. And I can only write about 15% of the content that we covered together because I just don't know how to disseminate the rest of it. It's so esoteric and so out there that I've, you know, elected to start with some of the the more basic and and, and easily, um, uh, you know, digestible stories about the um, the sacred bee and, 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 and how that goes back to the, the very beginning of time and and is alive and well and goes esoterically right right to the present. So, well, now your new book that's uh, that, uh, I mean, when will The Hive of History, when do you think that'll actually be out? Well, it's, it's getting bigger and bigger as, as time <laughs> goes on. And, um, so as the day job permits, I, I will be, uh, I'll be, be finishing that. I, I lecture on it frequently. I have a big lecture and Glastonbury uh, in, in August on it, and Glastonbury is the beekeepers, Iowa. It's also Avalon, um, and and so uh, it's it's all it's all done. It's just a matter of, of, of writing it down. But um, it's one of those rare times where I'm glad that I've um, life has delayed my completing it because it's it's just getting deeper, and I, I hope um, more interesting to to the readers. Um, well. 
Well, you know, for us, uh, you know, people who have been doing this, you know, this goddess path for a while, you know, we connect the bee to, you know, ancient Greece. I mean, the the priestesses, you know, were called the Melissae, and you know, you probably discovered all of that. And uh, but and of course, Artemis, uh, you know, she is called, she's called the queen bee uh, in in her uh, statue in Ephesus. You know, the the registers on her body. You know, some of the animals, uh, you know, you actually have the insect, the bee. Um, and what was interesting, I, I don't know if it was one of your shows, but another one of these alternative history shows on TV actually had an episode where Mary Magdalene uh, was associated as the queen bee. And they were showing these mosaics uh, that had just been uncovered. I think it was somewhere in Israel. I don't think it was Turkey. I think it was Israel, where they showed you Jesus alongside Mary Magdalene, and she had a bee with her. And we know that um, Artemis passed her baton to Mary Jesus's mother, but it almost feels like, well, maybe Artemis also passed her, passed her, you know, her bee motif, uh, maybe to Mary Magdalene as well. I, I wonder if that's any of what you've discovered and you know is there more you can tell us yeah we uh, you're 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 absolutely spot on of course with that and and Ephesus uh um you know I lived in Turkey so I've, I've been there um um several times and uh, not only are the coins that come from Ephesus not only do they feature the bee um and other evocative symbolism related to the bee which we can come on to but uh, the bronze age name of Ephesus translates as B. Um, so, so it's not surprising that we find, you know, everything that you, you just described. And, 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 and that part of the world was really Asia Minor, um, you know, sort of biblically, historically speaking. And I, I've kind of identified it as, as one of the, uh, the most ancient places on the planet where, where the, the mythology of uh, Tabella Kubaba in Sumerian um, terms, you know, I think it really starts with Kubaba is the only queen, the only queen on the Sumerian king list, uh, supposed to have reigned for a hundred years. And, you know, what we're talking about 2,500 BC. Um, but I think it goes much further back than that. But, but my, my favorite kind of story to kind of put in perspective, this, this notion of, Cabela and the meteorite and how that relates to bees has to do with um, Rome. Um, you know, it's, it's like 200 BC and Rome is being pelted by meteorites. And, and um, as they've always done in times of, of strife, they consult uh, the Sibylline books, uh, which are oracle utterances written in hexameter format by bee priestesses and interpreted by bee priestesses. Um, and, and, you know, for about 300 years, they've had similar incidents of meteorites falling from the sky. And they would, um, in one instance, uh, they consulted the text and the text said, well, you have to have a religious holiday in reverence of, of this event because it's a bad omen. Um, it happened 100 years later, and they, they buried four people alive as, as um, sacrifice to make amends 
Um, but it happened again. They were losing the war to Hannibal. And so the Sibylline text said, this is really bad. I mean, this is a, a horrible omen. These meteorites are falling from the sky. You have got to go get the mother goddess. She's a bee goddess. Her name's Cabela. She's a meteorite, and she lives in what we know as Turkey. Go get her. Um, so they, they go to Turkey and, and, and outside of Ankara. They, uh, um, they go to where the, the greatest manifestation of Cabela that's ever existed um, was, and I've been there, and it's an amazing temple. I mean, no one goes there. It's the middle of nowhere. Well, yeah, that's the thing. And you know what? That was Pessinus, I believe, right? That's where. Yes. That's, um, yes. And, you know, I, I when I read your article, uh, you know, I, my heart just sunk because, you know, we went all the way to Pessinus. And I don't know if our bus driver took us to the wrong place or whether maybe since I've been there, because this has been like about five years or so ago, maybe they discovered something that we didn't know at the time. But the only temple we found was not... Uh, was not um, named Pessinus's, uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't named Cabelli's uh, temple. It was something else, and it escaped me, some Roman temple. And I was under the impression that they hadn't yet, uh, they had been looking for it, but they hadn't ever discovered Cabelli's temple. So I was just amazed that you that you found it. Well, I, I, I was the only one there, and I went to the museum, um, if you could call it a museum, respectfully, and the chap there was an archaeologist, and, and he was just thrilled to have someone express some interest. So um, he took me to the spot where the meteorite would, would sit and, and where um, it was, it was um, uh, supported by a priesthood, and this is where it gets really interesting, the priesthood... Uh, who supported the meteorite, which sat on um, uh, an altar stone in the temple, had uh, castrated themselves in honor of the goddess. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, that is interesting because that very site is also the same site that the Attis myth or history comes from. So Attis was good-looking young man who was about to get married. Cabello was in love with him, so interceded. And supposedly he's marrying King Midas' daughter, so quite an important event. Uh, Cabello shows up and causes a bit of a spectacle, and he castrates himself, as does his would-be father-in-law. So that appears to be the link of where this castration cult comes from, but so and Rome goes there and takes the meteorite and takes the priest and they happily go with them. They're they're really happy to have such respect paid to them by Rome. So they go to Rome and they're welcomed with like a hero's welcome into the city and Rome's fortunes turn immediately. Everything goes well for them because Cabela, the mother goddess, the bee goddess, um, is in um the city, but it's not all as rosy as it would appear because guess what happens? There's a castration frenzy. The Senate has mm-hmm. to pass law saying stop mutilating yourself, um, but they don't. They're castrating themselves in honor of the goddess. And 
So they, 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 they put the stone, the meteorite, the black stone, up into a temple on Palatine Hill, and it stays there for hundreds of years. Um, and this is the bit that I think is just incredible. It, it, um, it disappears about the time that the world's most venerated stone, the world's most venerated relic, the black stone at Mecca, appears. Um, and what's that called? It's called the Kaaba. And <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> it's recognized as being Allah, but its original name was a lot, and that had three meanings. The maiden, the mother, and the goddess of fate. Um, the priest who looked after it, who still look after it, are not only called the sons of the old woman, but they castrate themselves today mm-hmm. in honor of that son. Yeah, so, it, it's. I think it's so ironic that whole Kabbalah stone thing is is so steeped in probably goddess history. I, I wrote a little bit about that in my Sacred Places book because I actually named Mecca as a sacred goddess site. Now that might blow the minds of some people, but when you look at the stuff like you're talking about and I wrote about, you see that there's this undeniable connection. Yeah, absolutely, and. and it gets really interesting because why a meteorite? Why is a meteorite the greatest historical manifestation of Kabbalah or Kubaba uh, before her? They're one and the same. But why? Why is that? Well, you know, and this takes us, I, I think, to um, the flood. I mean, we we speak of it in a singular way, but but really, all around the world, there's local mythology about a great flood around the same time um and and what could have caused a flood all around the world um well many things but most likely of which would have been meteorites penetrating the atmosphere and causing tsunamis and and you know we we all know what happens when when earth is is pelted look at the carolina bays um so so if you know, we, we're here. We survived it. Obviously, we did. But if something so traumatic happens that, that absorbs your life, there's a flood, you have to get into a boat, you have to, you know, go into a mountain to survive, you're going to venerate that thing that almost killed you, the thing that absorbed the entire planet as we know it. You're going to venerate it. And that's why the Blackstone, the meteorite, I think, has been venerated. And I think it's the meteorite, that black goddess, which becomes the black Madonna, um, which is venerated all throughout old Europe, and in particular, um, France. Well, well, that's interesting. You know, there's there are other theories on the you know the Black Madonna too, but that's that's another interesting one. Um, it, well, now the the uh, the the Cabelli, uh, meteorite. Um, am I imagining it, or did I actually see a picture of it on your website? Because I remember thinking, gee, it's smaller than I expected it to be. It, yeah, and, and you know, the only ever there's only one account of it historically, and they say that it was comfortable to hold in one hand. 
Yeah. Uh, because, you know, and, you think about Aphrodite's meteorite over in Cyprus, that's much bigger. Probably the probably the Cabelli one is, I don't know, maybe the size of an ostrich egg or something. Well, I mean, if, if it is, and it's just um, uh, a hypothesis that the black stone at, at, at Mecca is one and the same with the Cabela, the mother goddess from um, Asia Minor, it then it's you know you would probably need two hands to hold it comfortably but we've seen pictures of the, of the stone at mecca and it's been taken stolen smashed shattered put back together so no one really knows much about it but there's a physical description of it and it was used as the face of a statue in the church dedicated to it in Rome, it was the face of the um, um, the mother goddess, and we, we haven't well, really I... touched upon the fact that you know the mother goddess is fantastic um, uh, sculptures of the mother goddess that date to at least thirty thousand BC. Um, mm-hmm. Even conventional archaeologists, you know, acknowledge that, but. You look at them, and the archaeologists wonder why they're yellow and orange. Well, they've been coated in honey, laden in honey, because that's a sign of royalty and, and prestige, and so that they morph into the queen bee. Um, and the queen bee is, is, is something that's been venerated, you know, 100 million years ago. We, we have... Um, bees that have been petrified in amber and, and, and the ancients look at that and it looks as though they've been immortalized in their own honey. So they, they've already become symbolic of, 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 of something that, that no other animal or insect could, could claim that, you know, that they've been preserved for a, a very, very long time. Um, and, and, you know, we look at ancient Egypt, we all talk about, you know, the really strong goddess and God. Um, they both exist, coexisted happily in ancient Egypt. But, but, you know, the area around Cairo, the delta, around the pyramids, is called Tabiti, land of the bee. What's the pharaoh's um, title? Beekeeper. There's a picture of the bee in the pharaoh's cartouche. Um, why? Well, I believe that this flood we need to look at the flood a lot closer. So massive flood happens, I think, because of meteorites. And, and what does poor Noah do? You know, this, he survives this arduous journey, the poor guy. And the Bible says the first thing Noah does after the flood is he plants a vineyard. He needs a drink. Um, <laughs> And, you know, understandably so, the poor guy. But, you know, they make special note of the fact that's the first thing he did. Well, vineyards, especially ancient vineyards, you would need two or three seasons before you'd get lucky and it would really take root and you could harvest a a grape-based wine. So the fact that the Bible makes, the Old Testament makes a special mention of poor Noah who had drunk the wine and gotten so wasted that he passed out naked in his tent and wasn't able to make it back to his bed. It's a terrible thing to call out on, on someone. Now, he, he couldn't have had grape wine yet, so it would have, would have been a honey-based 
mead. And honey in the ancient world, particularly in that part of the world because of the rhododendrons, was hallucinogenic. The, the bee priestesses in Greece used to put it literally, respectfully, all over and inside of their body when they would speak uh, at the oracle. Um, so there's no telling how strong it's going to be. You could have a mild hallucinogenic mead or it could really knock you for 10, which it did apparently for um, Noah. But this migration after the flood comes into the Nile Valley, um, into Nakata. And, and, what you, and I've been out there. I've been in the eastern desert um, um, where they have the rock art that shows only boats. And in the middle of the boat, they have a little temple-looking thing but I have argued that that temple-looking thing is a beehive. And above it typically is a bull or bullhorn. And that bullhorn is an ancient sign of protection against the evil eye. And to this day in, in Greece, they harvest honey at night. <laughs> because the evil eye can get you during the day. Interesting. And, and so the the expression of the goddess with her arms above her head, the bull with the horns above its head, is the ancient most shamanic form of protection and is an expression of please protect this honey harvest because without it, we don't have um, pollinating for our crops. We don't have acupuncture. We don't have beer and bread, which we pay salaries with, and, and all these other byproducts of honey. So I, I think it was exceptionally important to the ancient Egyptians, um, and it came from Mesopotamia. Um, I, I, just, I just climbed the mountain, the real mountain, uh, where Noah's Ark was, uh, Judy Deag. It's the one the scholars agree, not Mount Ararat, Ararat that's sort of a red herring, Judy Deag. And when I got near the top, what do I find? Beehives. Um, really? So it's quite interesting. So where is the mountain you just, um, th- that you just mentioned, where is that? Judy Deag is right uh, below Lake Vaughan um, on the border of Syria and Iraq. I was there in... Um, September of last year, and and um, it's where the uh, Sumerian king had a carving um, in the mountainside made of himself because um, he knew that was the mountain of, of Noah. Um, it fits all the descriptions and uh, is part of the mountain range of Ararat. Um, not the mountain of Ararat. And and so the other thing, you know, about ancient Egypt, which is so interesting, is that you look at the tombs, um, and I've been to all these tombs, and it's really interesting because they show beekeeping, you know, fully formed uh, a really, really long time ago. And, and, so 2800 BC is the first relief on a tomb that shows the art of beekeeping fully formed. Well, yeah. Pharaonic 
Egypt is only about that old. So where where did it come from? Um, and you kind of hold that thought, and you move to this um, concept of Atlantis, which everyone waxes wax lyrical about. Um, but there's only one place in the world where the legend of Atlantis comes from, and that's Egypt. It's Sais in the Egyptian desert, the land of the bee. And um, Solon, the Greek lawgiver, goes there, and, and, and um, the priest meet him, and the priests say, let us show you these pillars. This recounts the lost civilization of Atlantis. Um, and, you know, he goes back to, um, to Greece and institutes law about beekeeping. Uh, ironically, but eventually Plato gets wind of this. He writes about Atlantis, you know, 9,500 years before uh, his time. Crantor, a philosopher, 300 years later says, I think it's all bollocks. I'm going to go check it out for myself. So he goes there, and the priest in Sais in Egypt in the Delta say, let us show you these pillars um, and and re- tell you about the story of Atlantis. Well, three things that are really important about that story. One is, Sais is where the goddess Neith, who is associated with Athena, who is associated with bees, they're both bee goddesses. Um, Athena lived, historically, fact, in the house of the bee. Osiris, come back to Osiris. Well, Osiris is buried there in the mansion of the bee, and the priests who are talking about um, 9,500 years before you know, their time, before the time of Solon, um, were talking lunar years. Every month is a year. So take that 9,500 B.C., divide it by 12, 12 months in a year, and you have the exact precise time that Thera erupted and wiped out the Minoan civilization. And the Minoans were contemporaries with Egypt, and they were their friends, so they would have known mm-hmm. about them. Interesting. Very interesting. And and then how does this then tie into Chateau Hayuk? I mean, because that's about 10,000 years old, and oh, and now we have, the, and we have the new Gobeki Tepki that they found too. Does that all, I mean, how does this all fit in together? Well, that's, that's a fabulous question. And what's really amazing is, you know, we now have DNA, right? We have DNA archaeology. But now we have satellite archaeology, which is really cool. And it's a whole other subject. But now we can find all kinds of good stuff. Um, poor Herodotus, who was called the great liar. You know, we're now finding things that he was talking about because we can see it from the satellite. Um, but, but um DNA tells us that the people of Chapel Hewlett, um, they, and only they, migrated to Crete and became the Minoans, um, which is amazing because in Chapel Hewlett, you have a wall that has, and I've, I've been there, um, nothing but a honeycomb design on this temple wall. And so the whole place has bull symbolism, 
mm-hmm. and, bee, and bee symbolism, which no one talks about the bee symbolism, a huge temple with nothing but a honeycomb. Also, in, in Australia, 10,000 B.C., no, 8,000 B.C., sorry, 10,000 years ago, uh, they have the same, same thing, an Aboriginal temple, if you will, that has honeycomb design. So what is this focus about the, uh, the honeycomb and the bee all about? So you've got bee and bolt symbolism in Chattahuag. They become um, the sort of, well, Minoans, and and that gets really interesting because what's the capital of, of the Minoans? It's Kenosis. Um, Kenosis is the palace of the double axe. Mm-hmm. Now, back in Chetlisuic, the archaeologists are on record, and Michael Rice in his great books writes about this, and he's a real conservative, down-the-line scholar, is that the archaeologists, were perplexed that the double axes look like artistic representations of bees or butterflies. Oh, the wing. Now, well, just, you know, a, a, a double axe is, is just that. It's the axe pointed to the right and the axe pointed to the left. Yeah, it's a, and, 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 yeah, it's a labrys. Yeah, I think they call it a labrys. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that, that the double axe would be used to ritualistically slaughter a bull, supposedly. Um, but when you look at them, go, you know, listeners, go just Google double axe and, and look at some of the images and you'll be like, oh, you're kidding me. That's a bee. Look at that. It's a stylized bee. And, and in, in Kenosis, um, where King Minos presided, all we know about King Minos is his son, died, drowned in a vat of honey. You have these huge pickles uh, jars, which scholars say, well, they must have had olive oil in there. No, the king's son drowned in a vat of honey. They had honey. And the double axes there um, look like bees. I mean, unambiguously look at bees, look like bees. And I, I have, my research tells me on Crete, the Minoans, and no one knows where the wealth came from. No one has any idea where their wealth came from. They were growing poppies. There was four regions on Crete where they grew poppies. Poppies is how you get opium. Opium is how you get heroin. The honey in the ancient world was hallucinogenic. And, and I believe they were mixing those together to form uh, a quite powerful concoction um, and distributing it distributing it around the Aegean. And their, their own models of their boats show honeycomb floors where you would put these little sort of concoctions. Um, and if you consume this opium drink, um, if you consume too much opium in that form, you go blind. So what happens to the Delphic uh, priestesses? They go blind. Akhenaten goes blind. Um, so I argue that Kenosis was not the palace of the double axe. It was the palace of the bee. It was a honey factory. Um, and w- w- what do you have at Kenosis is, is the horns of consecration everywhere, bullhorns, mm-hmm. artificial and real. But that is the expression, put your arms up over your head just like an Egyptian goddess. That's the expression of please protect us. Please protect this honey harvest. This so is so interesting, di- Andrew. 
Yeah, this is a di- yeah. this is a different. Uh, you know, this this might be um, you know new pieces of the puzzle. You know, as uh, you know, some of this. It, you know, people like yourself looking at it. You know, with fresh eyes. Um, and believe me, I know what what the you know women scholars go through trying to um, you know get academia to consider something. You know, a little bit. Um, out of the realm of you know what they accept as traditional thought. I mean the you know the women who have had to uh, try to make Ian hotter over at Shachel Hayuk you know consider you know other ideas. Um, you know the the women scholars who have tried to. Uh, make academia look at the artifacts from Malta, you know, when they have red ochre dripping down from, uh, you know, from their sacred yoni down their legs, and they want to say it's, uh, you know, male images, it's not female images. You know, you're lucky that you have the freedom to make your own interpretations and not have to worry about tenure or uh, university funding for a dig, you know, because you can look at stuff and connect the dots without somebody breathing down your neck, um, you know, judging, uh, you know, with, with the, the dots that you're connecting. Yeah, well, I mean, um, it's it's very true. You'd be happy to know that the the thought leaders um, in this space are all women. Eva Crane, unbelievable, dedicated her life to uh, be goddess archaeology. Marguerite Gimbutas, uh, Gimbutas. Oh yeah, the, yeah, know, Maria Gimbutas. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing, amazing um, work, and uh, you know, not surprisingly, these these people are, are are women. But you know, you you mentioned Malta. Malta is is, is a fantastic example because, um, in Malta, you have the largest, the bee with the biggest abdomen, in the world. I mean, it's just a mega, mega bee. And and what you have in Malta, we have hypogeum, which right. on the inside has nothing but a beehive motif, unambiguously a beehive motif, just like Aboriginal Australia, just like Chateau Hillock. Um And you've got the oldest known apiary um, bee factory in, in Europe, and it's 2000 B.C., and, and you have goddess temples that, if you look at them from the air, they're the classic goddess shape. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it, and 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 Malta's very name in Greek means means bee um, or honey. Sorry. So so it's it's and you know the the notion that goddess some goddesses are bee goddesses. Um, has virtually been been airbrushed from from history, and and I don't know if you're familiar with the work of a, a good friend of mine, Marguerite um, Rigaluso. Oh yeah, um, I, she's a she's a friend. She's been on the show many times. Oh, excellent, excellent. So the whole parthenogenesis. Um, oh yeah. This you know, um, I was just with her, and when she came to uh, to town to Canterbury, which she does from time to time, and heard her. Um, her fans, she and I have lectured together at events, so 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 we're good friends. But her research dovetails really nicely into to mine, and and you know the bees have something called a virgin brood, um, where the queen doesn't need to be 
um, impregnated by a drone. And, you know, you also have this, this um, we were talking about Crete. Crete is also where Icarus is from. And, mm-hmm. and Icarus flew too far towards the sun and his beeswax wings melted and he fell to his death. But, you know, uh, queen bees, the way that they procreate is they will fly. They'll only have sex when the sun is out and they'll fly as close to the sun as they can get. And the drones will fly up and have sex with the queen and then die. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's something I think is, is, is remembered in the, um, in, the, Icarus in the story. Of the Icarus well, so let's go back to Malta for a second because you've, you've, um, it, and I've been there in the hypogeum and, you know, and have been in the mother daughter temples and, uh, but I'm thinking about the, uh, sleeping goddess of Malta that they found there in the hypogeum, I believe. And, um, you know, nobody, I mean, you know, they had shoddy archeology span in Malta uh, and, you know, we talk about that, you know, uh, and, and unfortunately that's, you know, left it difficult to know what these these places were really being used for. But now that you're talking about the honey and the you know the the poppies and the hallucinogens that might have been in the um, the the honey, um, I'm thinking as you look at that sleeping goddess of Malta, you know, sometimes we, we've said, well, you know, maybe the hypogeum was used for dream incubation. You know, maybe it was used to bury the dead. Um, but I'm, but I'm thinking not maybe dream incubation, but what if these people had taken sacred hallucinogens, the honey, the poppy, um, and when we see the sleeping goddess of Malta, you see someone who is laying down, you know, taking one of these sacred journeys, shall we call them? I I think that that is so entirely possible, and it was uh, acceptable, and, you know, uh, drugs just like Hiawesca is, um, hallucinogenic honey for a, uh, a priestess, for a seer, is going to allow them to speak to the gods. It's going to be their entrance to the other realm, and, and these are the places where they would have done that. Um, yeah. And, and and you know the the thing the thing about uh, Crete and I call that Atlantis is right at the time when the priests in Egypt are saying that uh, there's um, you know Atlantis was extinguished is when Thera erupts but Thera doesn't erupt with one um, massive earthquake it's three over about. 50 or 60 years and and after the first one happens um, you have this fantastic bull leaping motif that's created and the bull has a tear in its eye um, and you can date that uh, fantastic fresco based upon the style of the frame which was introduced in the mainland just a few years before um, this is around 1000 BC, 1100 BC, and and historically there's a great record uh, of Homer and others talking about how priests got in their boats from Crete and went to Greece, and they were 
humming like bees. They got the grease. They brought the honey. They um, uh, introduced the Delphic bee. The, and all this, you know, and you look at the oracle, the most famous oracle stone in the world is in Greece, right? And what is it? Um, it's shaped like a beehive. I just went, touched it, been there, you know, a few months ago, again, for, you know, umpteenth time. It has a hole in it. With a, it was a real functioning hive. The bees, is a beehive hole in it. And, and the oracle stone has crisscrossing rows of bees in it. You're talking about um, at Delphi. You, you're talking about at Delphi. At Delphi, yeah, at Delphi, it has yeah the, the famous oracle stone that you see in all the pictures. Look at it again and think, oh my God, that's a beehive. Yeah, of course. It yeah, is. yeah, you know, yeah. Delphi, everything fits together. I think the the I think the the artifact you're talking about it it's sort of this big um, conical cement thing on the ground. I think they call it the navel of the world, but if we're talking about the same thing, yeah, I can absolutely see where it was not a navel. It was, it could very easily be identified as a beehive. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the most famous Oracle in in the history of the world, really. And and they came far and wide. Um, And I just did an episode on that for forbidden history. Unfortunately, a lot of, the prophecy was abused by the priest who mm-hmm. would arbitrarily interpret what the, the the priestess is is saying with her tongues because she is taking hallucinogenic honey and um she's she's with the gods um and the priest would you know exploit the situation to tell the wealthy patron more often than not, what they they needed to hear, and they even used carrier pigeons to go find out. And they interviewed them. They would send them a questionnaire weeks in advance, so they knew everything about them. They would come to Delphi. They would interview them for days on end, so they knew exactly what they wanted to hear. And what started out as a pure and true and very insightful way of communing with the other dimension to see the future ultimately became exploited by the priest who were exploiting the priestesses who were yeah. the, uh, the conduits to the gods. Wow. Well, you know, Andrew, I, I, we're starting to get short on time here, and I know you're on a tight schedule, so I, I don't want to keep you um, much longer. This has been fascinating, and um, I hope you'll come back so we can talk about some other things uh, because you've, you know, you I, I think you've opened my eyes and some of my listeners to some ideas that we maybe haven't heard before. But I, I, I would be totally remiss if I didn't ask you something about Renle Chateau before our hour is up. Um, I'm curious, you know, we, we hear the, you know, Rennes-le-Chateau that's in southern France, that's the place, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where we, you know, the Mary Magdalene connections, the Cathars, all of that. Um, and I forget the priest's name who supposedly found something there at Rennes-le-Chateau, and suddenly he becomes rich, and I think the story is maybe he blackmailed the Vatican because he found some information that, uh, you know, the, the it would have been uh, inconvenient convenient, shall we say, for, for uh, you know, for if that information got out. But I'm wondering, um, your close connections with that story, is, is there any more to that? Do we know what he found? Uh, is there anything you could tell listeners that isn't a part of that, you know, that, that, that new folklore associated with Ren Le Chateau and Mary Magdalene? 
Uh, very interesting. Well, yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, you speak, of course, of Beringer Saunier, and I'm off tomorrow morning to uh, Renault Chateau to um, film for two days with the Discovery Channel for an upcoming series called um, Secrets of the Underworld. And and um, so I believe uh, that Beringer Saunier wasn't um, didn't discover anything, but he was told where to look. And and um, I believe that what he found uh, was uh, an ancient document that uh, he took to Paris and had uh, uh, he went to Saint Sulpice, which I was just at a couple of days ago, also for this the same Discovery Channel uh, series. And in Saint Sulpice, they had an 18 year old um, priest at the time, Abby Hoffett, and the poor kid doesn't no old uh, ancient French. So they call um, the world's expert in old French, who happens to be a priest in Oxford, uh, England. They call him over there. And uh, he later, this priest, tells his students about this. And his student, uh, who's now really old, um, was really old when the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail came out, uh, contacted the authors to say that my instructor, Canon Lilly, um, was called to Paris to meet with a priest in the south of France who found some scrolls who provided um, proof that Jesus Christ was not crucified but was swapped by religious zealots lived to be um, uh, 50 years old and, and there was no resurrection. All that was uh, a hoax. Pontius Pilate just wanted him out of town, and right. and and the truth is, I mean, in Jerusalem during the crucifixion, you couldn't get within a few hundred meters. You're a few football fields away, and people forget the fact that you weren't allowed up close. Forget it. If you had binoculars, you might be able to see something in the distance. That's how remote it was. Um, so if you're the Habsburgs and if your dynasty steadily declined over the centuries and you used to be deciding who the next pope was going to be and, and calling all the shots, if you knew that the foundation of Christianity was not true, you would reclaim that when you needed it most. And the people who knew that, um, you know, started to die, um, uh, the, the Habsburg, uh, who was contemporaneous with Sonia, died within 60 days. Sonia's dead. Uh, the next person who's given the secret, Franz Ferdinand. What happens to him? He's assassinated in Sarajevo, killed in the event that kicks off World War One. The next person who knows it is a Habsburg who's a very bad man, not a very good man at all. What happens to him? He's put on the road to sainthood. <laughs> could he have traded this secret um, to the church in exchange for immortality and sainthood? I think it's what he did. So, so I think that's the mystery. Um, but Mary Magdalene, one of the things we're going to do in the next couple of days is go up into the Tower of the Magdalene, which the priest built after he made his discovery. The Tower of the Magdalene has 22 steps, 22 is the feast day of the Magdalene, one window, um, that points at 22 degrees south of west to a grotto in the distance whose ancient place name is the burial site of Mary Magdalene. 
So did he learn something else about um, the true nature of, you know, Mary and, and, and Jesus Christ? Maybe, as I say in Forbidden History, what if Jesus was Mary's plus one? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, so many of my listeners would, you know, I mean, we, we have long believed that, you know, that whole idea, you know, it would have been out of the ordinary for Jesus, you know, to not have been married. And, you know, there's the Magdalene Gospels and all of that. So very interesting stuff. And and I'll just throw this in just in case you don't know, but you probably do. You know, St. Sulpice uh, in, in, uh, in Paris there was actually built on an old Isis temple. Uh, that was some of the research that... Uh, that I uncovered, uh, you know, doing my, you know, due diligence for sacred sites of goddess around the world. Uh, but, uh, yeah, St. Sulpice, um, uh, I, I, you know, that's, you know, they have uh, Templar connections and everything, I think. So, um, uh, you know, I, what I wouldn't give to have a time machine. <laughs> that's all I have to say. Well, I, 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 was, I was just at St. Sulpice uh, three days ago filming – a Priory Science episode for the same series, and 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 um, you know it, it's on the old French meridian. It has um, an octopus uh, there. It Saint Sulpice, the feast day of Saint Sulpice, is, is January seventeenth. Every Priory Science letter has an octopus and dated the seventeenth of January, and and it has all the elements of Le Serpent Rouge, one of the Priory documents. So I'm really cynical about the Priory Science. And, and this church is on the meridian. The meridian goes right through to within two kilometers of Renaud Chateau, right by the Poussin tomb. Um, so it's fascinating. But, but I think, my personal opinion, and I'll say this for the first time ever, Pierre Plantard walks into St. Sulpice and instantly comes up with every piece of symbolism that he will need to hoax the Priory of Zion, which was created in 1956 not a day sooner. But that's wow. a subject for another time. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh so so tell us what uh, what are your next uh, what are your next projects? Um and will you be speaking anywhere in the United States or especially uh the West Coast, Los Angeles anytime soon? Well, thank you. I would love to. Um I have no speaking engagements in, in the US um at present, but uh, I I would love to. I'm presenting at Glastonbury on August 22nd. It's going to be a huge weekend of um, um, goddess and uh, bee veneration and bee symbolism. And um, in the, the autumn of 2016, a really big similar event in uh, uh, Finhorn, Scotland. Um, but tomorrow I'm off to run the to finish the Discovery Channel uh, Secrets of the Underworld. And then uh, we filmed season two of What on Earth on... The Science Channel. Um, so hopefully sometime in between there I'll get a chance to, to, to write some more of this stuff down in the hidden hive of history. And one, one last thing is this sort of discussion uh, we feature in the Heretic Magazine, um, which is um, coming out um, in the, the, the middle of July, uh, Volume 6. And so thehereticmagazine.com, please check it out if you like this sort of alternative history. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll love that. Well, and you also have, um, uh, you can get past issues I saw on Amazon. I don't know if that's the best place to go, but I'm really interested in reading your article about the goddess who fell to earth. Is the best way to 
get the magazine through Amazon, or is, is there a better alternative? I mean, can we get it directly from you, and maybe the money goes in your pocket instead of Amazon? Oh, that's kind of you. Well, I mean, um, the HerojectMagazine.com is the place place to buy it. But um, in all fairness, both the Goddess of Belle to Earth and and my other B research, it's it's all available for, available for free on AndrewGoff.com. Okay, wonderful. Well, um, this is this has been a fascinating conversation, Andrew. I hope uh, we can continue it uh, periodically as uh, you know as you find new stuff to talk about. I mean, obviously there there's a lot more we could talk about today, but uh, you know we've run out of time. And boy, you you are a lucky man. I envy you that this is your job. Uh, and uh, you know this this would be my perfect job. I would love to do what you're doing. I mean, you must be having such fun out there. And to get paid for it, I mean, imagine. <laughs> well, it, it is it is good fun. So thank you. I, I look forward to uh, to next time. Okay. Well, thank you very much, and uh, have safe travels, and uh, may you have wonderful discoveries ahead, and uh, just make sure you bring all your discoveries back to us. Look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Well, dear listeners, I'm sure uh, uh, these connections that uh, Andrew has made uh, were as interesting to you as as I. You know, some fresh eyes on uh, some of these ideas. And, uh, yes, go to his Heretic magazine and some of the shows that we've talked about. Uh, if you've missed anything, um, uh, you know, here that you want to explore further, just uh, email me or you can email Andrew at uh, his website, uh, andrewgolf.com, uh, A-N-D-R-E-W-G-O-U-G-H.com. Um, I will be back with you next week uh, uh, on our regular night, uh, Wednesday, uh, same same night, same time, 6 p.m. Pacific, and my guest will be Carol Guyette discussing sacred plant initiations and all the esoterica about reaching altered states and other dimensions. Cool stuff indeed. And, you know, that topic seems to keep rearing its head, doesn't it? Uh, I didn't expect it to go in that direction today, uh, but it did. And, you know, if you've been a longtime listener of the show, um, you you will probably recall my many conversations with David Hillman, who wrote The Chemical Muse. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we didn't have the taboos that we have today uh, in the ancient world about sacred hallucinogens. You know, they were used much more readily. You think about the mushrooms they used in Eleusis for the Demeter Persephone, uh, you know, rituals and things like that. You know, uh, you know, it it uh, it, it expanded the mind. And uh, even today, uh, we're starting to have research done that shows us uh, the benefit of. Uh, you know, of, of using these under the right circumstances, of course. So um, if you like uh, what you've been hearing today and in past shows, I hope you will show your appreciation and support. Uh, please go to my website, karentate.com. Uh, once you're there, go to the Goddess Store page, scroll down. Uh, please buy a book, make a donation, and uh, please avail yourself of the free stuff that's there as well. Uh, it uh, would be greatly appreciated, and it helps me pay for the airtime to be able to bring you uh, these wonderful guests uh, that you've come to know and I think love each week, uh, because yes, I do pay out of my pocket to keep the show on the air. 
Well, uh, that about does it for today. And um, since we have been talking so much about bees, uh, I think I'm going to close the show with a tribute to not just bees, but uh, Lane Redman. And this is some of the music that uh, she uh, gifted me with to use here on the show before she passed away. Uh, We do miss you, Lane, and we will forever... um, just be so appreciative of all your research uh, into the bee goddesses and when the drummers were women. And uh, so uh, please stay with me and uh, hear the bee mantra by Lane Redman. Uh, There's about 10 minutes of this, and it might take a couple seconds before it starts. But um, in tribute to the sacred bee, not just Lane, but uh, the bee goddess herself. (laughs) 